So today we're going to be continuing, picking back up, I should say, with the sermon series that we were in. We took a break last week. It was Mother's Day, did the sermon sort of Mother's Day themed. But prior to that, we had been in the series Lessons from Biblical Figures. We're going to come back to that series, Lessons from Biblical Figures. And so the question is, well, what biblical figures are we going to be looking at today? We're going to take a look at Adam and Eve and Paul. So thus far, prior to this, we sort of looked at one each week. Uh, we're going to kind of lump all of these together, Adam, Eve, and Paul, and you might be thinking, okay, you know, where's this going? What do those three have to do with one another? Uh, well, the, the themes we're going to focus on as we look at their lives and as we learn from them are, are that of pride and humility. Uh, so we're going to see that as we take a look at Adam and Eve and Paul. We're going to see pride and humility. So let's, let's get right to it. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at Adam and Eve first, and then after that, We'll turn to, to Paul, the Apostle Paul. So we're going to look at Adam and Eve first, and here we're going to be taking a look at pride. So we're going to focus on pride first as we look at Adam and Eve. So this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. And let me read it for us. I'll kind of go through verse by verse, interject, then we'll kind of come back big picture and again focus on. There's a lot in this passage as we're going to see, but sort of focus on it from the perspective of pride and sort of what comes of it. What are the consequences of this pride? So Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent, and here this is not just a serpent, but of course it's, it's the devil himself in serpent form. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I want to pause here, and, and, and I'll reread that, that verse 5 here because I want to pick it apart a little bit. For God knows that when you eat from it, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this tree that they weren't to eat from. Of course, we know the story and we're familiar. We know they do wind up eating of it, Adam and Eve. But for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here, you know, the devil, he's just such a great deceiver, right? He, he's so good at deceiving. That's what he's doing here with Eve. And then, of course, she sort of passes the fruit on to Adam. If we know the story, we'll, we'll get there. But sort of if you think of the best lies, if you're sort of trying to, to trick someone and deceive them, have sort of like a grain of truth in them, the sort of a degree of truth, and that's what makes it easy to sort of like buy into it. But then you just sort of like twist it, pervert it a sense, and, and, and turn it into a falsehood. And that's, in a sense, what, what the devil is doing here when he said for, says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there is some truth to this. This tree is a testing tree. And whatever the outcome had been, right, it, it, the reality was whether they'd eaten the fruit or not, and we know they did eat the fruit. But either way, the ultimate outcome was going to be that their eyes were going to be opened. This is what he says. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And if we even read on, and we will, we'll see God even affirm that fact that they are, in a sense, like God in this sense. Not like God in the sense of now they're divine like God. But no, like God in the sense of knowing good and evil. And you might say, well, sort of, 
in what sense, either way, whether they'd eaten the fruit or not eaten the fruit with this testing tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how would they have sort of this, this, their eyes being opened and, and now they have this knowledge of good and evil? Well, if they'd eaten the fruit, and of course they do as, as we read on, now there's this deep, intimate knowledge of the evil they did do. They're intimately aware of it, right? Sort of know it in that deepest sense, have that knowledge of the evil they did, but then sort of also would have this deep knowledge of the good that they should have done, but didn't do. But again, if you also flip the story and you say, well, what if they hadn't eaten that fruit? Of course they did, but what if they hadn't? Well, then they would have this knowledge of the good that they had done, being faithful to God's command, not eating that fruit. And they would have then, by extension, had a knowledge of the evil that they didn't do, right, if they hadn't eaten the fruit, that they then wouldn't have done eating the fruit, disobeying the Lord. So either way, the outcome was going to be sort of their eyes being opened and having this knowledge of good and evil, whether the good they'd done or the evil they had done. And so the devil knows this, but again, he takes this truth, hey, you're, you know, you're going to be like God and you'll know good and evil. Again, there's sort of some factuality to that. Again, not like God in the sense of being God, but like him in having this knowledge of good and evil, just as God has a great knowledge of, of good and evil. But he sort of spins it in sort of the subtext and kind of implication of this is like he's saying it in the sense of, hey, Eve, don't you want to be like God? Right? I mean, think of God and who he is and wouldn't it be wonderful? You know, here you are, you're just your people and, you know, your servants of God. Wouldn't you like to be like God? And in fact, hey, you can be like God. And sort of what he, the picture he's putting in Eve's mind isn't just like be like God in one sense, knowing good and evil, which again was going to happen either way. But he sort of spins it in the sense of creating this mindset of you can be just like God. It's like you can be divine. You can be deified. You'll be like God. Just eat this fruit. That's why God doesn't want you to eat it. He doesn't want you to become like him, so he's keeping you from it, right? It's like God's the problem, so just go eat this fruit. You'll be like him. It'll be wonderful, right? And so what winds up happening when the woman saw, she sort of buys into this logic, like, yeah, okay, I hear what you're saying, serpent. This sounds good. I want to be like God. All right, I I'm in, Right When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And then doesn't stop there, but, but goes on. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So I want to pause here, right? So they, they wind up eating this fruit that they weren't to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we certainly get insight into sort of Eve's logic here, what, what the devil says to her. Clearly sort of, you know, she uses that same logic with Adam. You can sort of assume she sort of uses that logic with him as well. Hey, let's become like God. Let's be like him. And Adam's sort of like, all right, you know, that sounds pretty good, Eve. I'm in too. Okay, I'll take that fruit from you and, and, and eat as well. Right? So we can sort of assume Adam's logic was sort of flowing along the same lines as Eve's. And again, we want to think here in terms of pride. And first of all, any act of sin, if you sort of really boil it down to, to sort of what's at the root of that, in any act of sin, what you're effectively saying is, God, I, you know, I don't want you as my Lord. I, I don't want you to be God in my life. I don't want you on the throne. I kind of want to, like, give you the boot, and I want to be on the throne. I want to be boss. I want to be Lord. And there's sort of an act of pride in that, of, of seeking to elevate yourself, exalt yourself to the place of God. Basically, God, I don't want you to be God in my life. I want to do my own thing. I want to be God. 
And that's sort of the highest you know, version of pride and, and arrogance you can think of to say, God, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. Even though I'm mere man, I want to be God in my life. I want to, to exalt myself to that place in my life and do what I, whatever I want. I want to be boss. And so in any act of sin, and we, that, that's certainly present here in this initial first act of sin, uh, there's arrogance and pride on the part of man when we sin. We're saying, God, you're not the boss. I want to be the boss, even though we're not the boss, and God rightfully holds that place. But even thinking specifically here of the logic that I sort of went through, how, how Satan is sort of tempting Eve here and what's going on in her mind, what, what, what's going on is she's sort of saying, I want to be like God. That, that's, that's effectively what, what the devil is putting forth here. You can eat this fruit, and then you'll be like God. And again, this, it's this pride and arrogance going on in her mind of, you know, even though I'm just some lowly created being, you know, still having a, an exalted place, you're a ruler over the earthly creation, but still a created being, a servant of God, yet in her mind, pridefully puffing herself up and says, yeah, you know, I want to be God. Why not? God's great. God's awesome. I want to be like God. And again, this is just sort of the highest order and magnitude of pride and arrogance that one can have. That's her mindset. And again, clearly Adam would have had the same mindset as well, though we don't quite get the insight into what he was thinking, but I would imagine it's the same thing of, yeah, I, I want to be God. And again, the pride and arrogance of that. And so we see this pride on the part of Adam and Eve, and we're going to read on and see well, what's sort of the fallout. What are the consequences? What happens as a result? So we'll read on verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, just note there, I, pretty much every translation seems to say in the cool of the day. Literally, it says in the wind of the, the day, mean, in the word is yom. Uh, generally, if you see that word yom in Hebrew, you'd say, oh, that, that's day, it means day. Uh, but there's another Hebrew word, yom, that also means storm. And if you think of, well, the wind of the day, so then the way they try to translate that is like, well, the breezy, cool part of the day, that's how you get that translation. Far more logical is, well, the wind of the storm. And again, if you think of theophany in the Bible, whenever God sort of shows up on scene, he sort of masks himself, wraps himself in, in a storm cloud. So it perfectly fits. Here's God showing up on scene in the midst of a storm. Uh, and, and so it's the wind of the storm. That's what's being said here, right? So then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the wind of the storm, not the cool of the day. Not that it changes everything, but just to understand there, right? In the wind of the storm. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And it's not like God doesn't know. He knows, but nonetheless, he's posing the question, have you eaten that fruit? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Right? You've got to love sort of the response of, of Adam here. It's just like classic sinful man. Like, would we really be any different if we were in those shoes? You could criticize him, but I think we'd sort of be the same. It's like, Hey, Adam, you ate that fruit. What's the deal? And Adam's immediate reaction is like point to Eve. Like, well, she gave it to me, you know, and in fact, it's not like, it's not my fault. It's her fault. And, and if you really want to think about it, God, like really it's, it's your fault because it's the woman you put here with me. So you gave me Eve and she did this. So like, really, God, it's, it's your fault. Not mine. Can't blame me. Uh, that's sort of Adam's logic there. Again, not a great logic, but probably we would do the same thing and try to shift the blame. 
Uh, right, so the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then reading on. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right, she does the same thing. It's sort of like, let me point the finger further. Adam's going to point at me. Well, I'm going to point at the ser serpent and say, well, well, it's his fault, really. Not mine. It's his fault. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And we get here even, you know, sin's now just entered the world. And yet already we get like a little glimpse of the gospel uh, and in fact, this, this verse here, Genesis 3.15, is often referred to, if you like the big words, uh, proto-evangelium, which just means sort of like first gospel, like the first place in scripture that we sort of get the gospel message or sort of a little snippet of it, right? And we see that here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So then speaking of her offspring, and not just generally, but a specific offspring, spring, speaking of Christ, speaking of Jesus, he will crush your head speaking of the devil, and you will strike his heel. So it's sort of, here's the devil, and he has his scheme, and his plan is, is to uh, get mankind to sin. He has succeeded in that. And now mankind is, is rightfully under God's judgment and wrath. And so this is sort of his plan. Go, blow up the created order. Blow up mankind. Now man's under God's judgment and wrath, and, and that's sort of the devil's plan, right? But what's being said is, you know, the devil is not ultimately going to be successful right, in, in, in holding mankind under the judgment and wrath of God, but rather this offspring of the woman, this specific offspring one day will come, and what, he, what will he do? He will deliver mankind, right? He will save us from our sin, from the wrath of God that should rightfully fall upon us. He will save us from that and defeat the devil's scheme to keep us under the just judgment and wrath of God. So he will crush the devil's head, but it will be at cost to the Savior. It will hurt him, right? He will have to die to do it, and that's the, and you will strike his heel, right? So his heel will be struck. Uh, so we get like a little glimpse of the gospel message here, even right as sin has first entered the picture here, yet God's giving us a little glimpse of but I'm going to make a way for man to be saved. Don't think the devil's won and, and now mankind you know, has no hope under God's judgment and wrath, but I will make a way for people to be saved. I will thwart the devil. I will bring about salvation. But again, it will be at cost to the Savior. His heel will be struck. So reading on, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It would be very easy to read over that, sort of Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, uh, Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Like, oh, that's great, that's nice, he gave them clothing, and that's wonderful. But I'd say we get a, a little, there's more to it here, and we get, again, like a little snippet of, of the gospel. 
you know, animals don't just like give up their skin willingly. It's not like, like, where did he find this garment of skin? It was just sort of like hanging around, you know, this leather thing, garment or whatnot. You know, no, of course, an animal had to die. And we have to understand sort of the symbolism of this, this nakedness. What's going on? You know, they sinned and now they recognize they're naked and this sort of feeling of like, I need to cover it up and so forth. Whereas before the fall, it was like, hey, we're naked, no big deal. That's great. That's wonderful, right? And it's not about sort of physically being naked. It's pointing to really a deeper spiritual reality. And it's sort of this sin nakedness. It's like they've sinned and now that, that ugliness of sin is sort of spiritually like on them and they need to cover it up. It needs to be made so like it's no longer there, right? And so again, now this clothing of them, this is all symbolic, but this physical clothing of them that, that comes what? At the cost of a life, right? The, the life of this animal, again, is pointing to this deeper spiritual reality that their spiritual nakedness will one day be covered, right? And it's, it's going to involve the giving of a life, and that's Jesus, right? Through his life, he will make a way for our sin to be covered over, our sin nakedness to be covered over and clothed. That's what's being said. Again, just like a little snippet of the gospel there way back in Genesis chapter 3. So reading on, verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Right now, so there's, there's a lot here, and I've, I've talked a lot about it, but I want to kind of have sort of that focus on pride that we've been, been talking about. So again, we, we see the, the pride, the arrogance of, of Adam and Eve. Again, just sort of in sin generally, there's, there's a pride there of saying basically, I want to be God in my own life. I want to be the boss. You know, even though that's God's rightful place, right? I'll sort of exalt myself to that place in my life. I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to be in charge. We see sort of the pride, the arrogance there. But again, even in the logic going through their minds that, that, that sort of Satan has put forth, hey, don't you want to be like God? If you just eat this fruit, it's like, you'll be like him. And again, Adam and Eve buy into that and sort of, yeah, you know, again, pridefully sort of, I want to be like God. I want to be divine like him and awesome and wonderful. I, I want to eat this fruit and I'll become like him, right? And so that's the mindset. Again, there's this pride and arrogance of sort of exalting oneself to God's place and I want to be like him. And what is the fallout? What's sort of the consequence, right? They exalt themselves in pride and pride. They seek to exalt themselves to the place of God. And the result is they are brought awfully low. And we're going to see this pattern of those who who pridefully exalt themselves being humbled and brought low. And then the flip side, those who sort of humble themselves then being lifted up and exalted and honored. So we're going to see that pattern as we look at, at other passages in Scripture. But just to highlight it, the, the point of them being brought low and humbled, again, think of the consequences here that, that we just read about. There's death really on, on every level, physical death. They're, they're now mortal and they will die and, and did in fact then die ultimately years down the road. But, but death, physical death, not just that, but then spiritual death being cut off from God, uh, you know, no longer in a right relationship with him and fellowship with him, cut off from God, but then ultimately also eternal death, right, under God's just judgment and wrath uh, because of their sin, but then added consequences as well, uh, painful childbearing, 
laborious, toilsome work, working of the soil to be able to, you know, to eat the, the fruit of, of the soil. Um, and so there's all sorts of, of consequences, right? They exalted themselves in pride, and now they are humbled and brought low. Again, as I said, we're going to see that pattern as we continue to look at Scripture. This is just how God responds to pride, and, and as we're also going to look at sort of the flip relationship, the way he responds to humility by exalting. So we've looked at Adam and Eve. I want us to turn and, and look at Paul as well, the Apostle Paul. And as we look at Paul, we're going to see from different stages of his life, we're going to see both the pride side. We're going to look at that first. And again, sort of what's the fallout, the consequences, being humbled, brought low. But then we'll also see sort of from later in life, his great humility and God exalting him, lifting him up. So we're going to turn to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through the first half of uh, verse 19. And I'll read it for us. It says, Meanwhile, Saul, talking to Paul, Saul, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues uh, in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And I want to speak to sort of the context. You know, at this point, who was Paul or, or, or Saul? What was he like? You know, he was an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the church, persecuted the church. That's what he was going to do here, headed, headed to Damascus. Um, uh, Paul was certainly someone at this stage in his life who was filled with pride. He thought he was just the greatest thing, this great Pharisee who just so well fulfilled the law. Uh, he thought he, he understood everything. You know, he thought he knew what was true. He thought he sort of had spiritual sight and eyes to see. And I sort of use that language because I think intentionally we see Paul being blinded here. And I think there's a statement in that. Yes, he's blinded by this, this glorious radiant light from shining forth from Christ in, in his glory. That's true. And that's blinding him. But I think there's still more of a statement than just that. It's sort of, here's Paul who in pride thinks, I know everything. I know the truth. I know the way. I know what, what's right. I know what's wrong. And these Christians, they've got it all wrong. He thinks he has all the answers, but the reality is spiritually he's blind. He, he, he doesn't have all the answers. Quite the opposite. He's entirely wrong. Uh, and again, his physical blindness here is pointing to the fact that he was spiritually blind as well. He didn't get it. He thought he was the greatest thing. He thought he knew everything. He thought he was this great Pharisee fulfilling the law. Again, just, just pride in the extreme. And yet, what do we see? We see him being brought low here, right? He thinks he's so great. And yet here he's confronted by Christ. You know, you think you know all the answers, Paul, but you know nothing. You're spiritually blind. And now you're literally physically blinded for three days, right? Brought low. He didn't eat or drink anything. You can imagine him just sort of like reeling here, just trying to take it all in, processing, uh, you know, what's going on? I've gotten it all wrong. Clearly this, this Christ, this Jesus really is Christ and I've totally missed it and being humbled here. 
right? And let's read on here now, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Right. So again, you have here Paul puffed up with pride, thinking he's the greatest, yet then brought low indeed, right? exalting himself in pride, Yet then, how does God respond to those who exalt themselves in pride? He brings them low. Here's Paul brought low, confronted by Christ, saying, you've got it all wrong. You think you're so great. You're not. You don't understand the truth. You're spiritually blind, right? And again, Paul recognizes that. And again, ultimately, what do we see? I said this sort of symbolism here to, to his, his blindness. He was sort of spiritually blind. But then ultimately, he, he comes here to realize the truth. Like, this Jesus really is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. I, I get it now. I, I believe. And at that time, well, then he's healed, right? And he can see immediately. Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, right? This is his conversion. It's also his calling to, to ministry and apostleship. But it's his conversion as well. He's converted now. He spiritually sees, and the scales fall from his eyes. He can see physically, symbolizing he can now see spiritually. But again, as we're focused on, he's prideful. And how does God respond? He brings him low and humbles him. But if we turn to later in, in Paul's life, we're going to see quite the opposite. No longer is he this prideful Pharisee type who thinks he's the greatest and then winds up being humble. But it's the flip. We now see this, this great apostle and yet characterized by great humility. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read it for us. Paul writing says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And we'll read on here, but even how does he characterize himself? Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And speaking of sort of his becoming an apostle here, he sort of says his becoming apostle, it's like the way to describe it is sort of being abnormally born. And what does Paul mean by that? If you think of all of the other apostles, these were people who uh, were followers of Christ during his earthly ministry, disciples of his, had been longtime followers 
uh, of Christ and then ultimately received that call to, to apostleship. That was sort of all of the other apostles. That was sort of their pathway, you know, what characterized them as apostles. Longtime followers of Christ who followed in his footsteps, were disciples during his earthly ministry, faithful to the Lord. And yet, you know, here's Paul, this other apostle, and sort of what was his journey? How did he become an apostle? Well, he wasn't, you know, a disciple of Christ during his earthly ministry, following him faithfully. Uh, no, this was someone who persecuted the church, who wanted nothing to do with Christ, and Christians thought they were the worst thing. Again, he thought he knew it all and had all the answers. He thought he had spiritual sight, but didn't, rather was spiritually blind, persecuting the church. Uh, but of course, Christ confronted him, as we read on the road to Damascus, and, and uh, of course, gave him that, that calling uh, to be an apostle. And so again, for Paul, it's like, it's like, I'm not like a normal apostle describing how I became apostle. It's like I was abnormally born. Again, using sort of this, this humble language to describe himself as, as an apostle, not like the others who sort of more normally seem like apostles and sort of as they serve the Lord so faithfully. But I, I persecuted the church. I'm like an abnormally born apostle using that humble language describing himself. But he continues with this humble language, his, his humility. We see it in the, the following verses, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. And again, this is like Paul that, that most of us in the church, we sort of look at and be like the greatest apostle. You know, if you think about it, like who would you think of as like the greatest, you know, follower of Christ who ever lived, this just great champion of the faith. It's like the first person that would pop into your mind would be like, Paul, like who was a greater follower of Christ than him? Who loved the Lord more? Who was more passionate about him and served him more faithfully? Like Paul would come to your mind and he's like, I'm the least of the apostles. Like I'm nobody, I'm nothing. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then he goes on, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? And again, it's sort of like what I am, that's all by God's grace. It's not, it's, he's not taking credit. It's all by the grace of God that he is what he is, that he's an apostle. All of the equipping that, that he had as an apostle, all of the ways in which God, God had empowered him. Again, it's not like, hey, that's all me. That's all me, Paul. No, it's, that's all by the grace of God. I deserve no credit in any way. I'm nothing. Right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Right? It bore much fruit for the kingdom. Right? That, that's what he's saying. And then he goes on. He says, no, I worked harder than all of them. Yet he wants to make sure, don't, don't think that I'm taking credit saying, you know, uh, you know that, that, yes, I did bear all of this, this fruit for the Lord, for his kingdom, going around on these missionary journeys, planting churches everywhere, preaching the gospel, leading so many people to faith in Christ. Right? Don't think I'm taking credit for that. Yeah, I, I did work harder than all of the rest of the apostles. Then he goes on, yet, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Right? Whether it's that, that good work ethic, I don't deserve credit for that. That's God's grace. Whether it's all of my success and all the fruit that I bore, it, it, you know, every way in which God used me, it was just the, you know, his grace, all the ways he graciously equip, equipped me and used that to bear fruit for his kingdom. He deserves the credit, not me. That's not me. It's his gracious empowerment. All of the fruit that he bore, ultimately he's saying, it's not my work, it's ultimately God's work and he did it. And so it's like, I'm, I'm nothing, right? It's all God's, everything, it's just God's work and by his grace, and I'm nothing. That's what Paul is saying here. And he goes on, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed, right? So here you just get a little bit of insight into Paul's mindset and just his great humility of heart, where it's like, even though he's this great apostle to the Gentiles, in his mind, it's like, 
I'm nothing. I'm least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called one. Any, any good thing you see in me, it's like, it's not like I should be credited with that, is what Paul's saying. Like, that's all the grace of God. Everything he's done through me, all of that fruit that he's born, don't, don't credit me with that. That's not me. It's all God's work. It's all God's. He deserves the credit for it. I am nothing. Again, great, great, great humility. And again, if we think of sort of, and then what sort of the outflow, as I mentioned earlier, if we think of Paul, naturally we're going to think of him as just sort of this, this great champion of the faith. If you had to pick, I think if you asked most evangelical Christians and said, you know, pick like the one person you would pick who's just like the greatest follower of Christ through all of history, I think the first name that would come to our minds, we'd probably feel pretty confident in our answer would be like, that's the Apostle Paul. That, that's him. Like, who else was just so, like, sold out for the Lord and passionate for him and served him so faithfully, lived so faithfully, just loved him so greatly? Like, it's the Apostle Paul. And, and you know, so here's Paul humbling himself, and yet God has given him this honored place in the church, in the history of the church, made him an apostle, but not just really any old apostle, apostle even though Paul might think of himself as least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Like He's like apostle of apostles, the greatest one, the one who was just so faithful to the Lord, this champion of the faith, the one God used to just bear so much fruit for his kingdom, not just in Paul's life, not just sort of giving him that honored place of bearing so much fruit for the kingdom, building up the church. But even if you just think of through the letters that he wrote, I mean, you may not realize it or not, but of the 27 books in the New Testament, 13 were written by Paul. I mean, you can just sort of like make it a round number sort of and say that's basically half, right? Just a hair under half. Uh, but he's written half of, of the books of, of the New Testament. You know, think how God has used that through the ages, generation after generation, ministering to, to Christians and, and reaching the lost through, through the, the, those letters and the gospel presented uh, in them as well. Uh, think of how just generation after generation, so many Christians have just looked up to Paul as this mentor in the faith and, and just seeking to follow Paul's example as Paul followed Christ so faithfully. Right, Paul has just been given this greatly honored position in the church. He humbled himself. Right, he was truly humble, even though you know he he was this great apostle. And you could think it would be easy for that to go to his head and be like, "I'm an apostle. I'm kind of a big deal. I'm Paul. Everyone knows me." And sort of like puff yourself up in pride and think I'm so great. Yet, even though he was this great apostle, yet just he had such great humility. And God exalted him and gave him this greatly honored position in the church. Not just any old apostle, but this great champion of the faith. I would say the greatest of the apostles and gave him that lofty position in the church. And so looking at, at Adam and Eve, looking at Paul, we, we see this pattern. We're going to look at some other scriptures that, that clearly uh, lay this out. But we see this pattern of those who are prideful and seek to exalt themselves in pride. They're brought low. But those who lower themselves, who humble themselves, they are lifted up and exalted. And we see that spoken of very clearly in a couple passages, and I'll, I'll read them for us. It's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. So we see this in the Old Testament. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, right? So if you're prideful, you're going to wind up being brought low. But a humble spirit will obtain honor, right? If you're humble, you'll be lifted up and honored. We see Jesus speaking of this, Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself, and again, pride is sort of that heart attitude. If you think, well, he's talking about exalting himself, you're talking about pride. Pride is sort of that heart attitude that then fuels in the exaltation of self. They, they go hand in hand. So whoever's prideful and in that pride seeks to exalt himself, that person will be humbled. 
and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, this is just how God operates in regard to pride and humility, right? Where this pride, he brings those people low. Uh, where this humility, he elevates them and exalts them to honored places. And we're given a great example, a perfect example, in fact, that we are to follow after when it comes to humility, right? We're not to be prideful, but rather we're to be humble. And we're given this perfect example in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and it's the example of Christ Jesus. Paul's writing here, and he says, your attitude, and he's speaking of Christ's humility, we'll see this as we read it, but your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Right? And what here is the example of Christ that we see, even though he's God the Son, God himself, yet what does he do? He humbles himself in service to the Father. He humbles himself, becomes one of us, comes to this earth, right? becomes a human being, but it doesn't end there. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, sort of the most shameful, lowest way of dying, being executed. Right? He humbles himself to that place, hanging on a cross in the place of sinful man, taking the wrath of God for us, making atonement for sin, right? He humbles himself to that lowest place, death on a cross, and then what happens? God exalts him, right? That's what goes on. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ humbles himself even to the point of death on a cross, and again, what comes of that? How does the Father respond? By exalting him to the highest place. And Paul is saying, we should have that same attitude. That's how he starts. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We should follow Christ's example. We should humble ourselves. And if we do, if we truly do humble ourselves, then God will lift us up and exalt us. That's just how God operates. And as we think of sort of application and applying this, obviously, of course, don't be prideful, be humble, but I want to flesh that out a lot more than, than just leaving it sort of that simplistically. Uh, the reality is we all struggle with pride to varying degrees. Perhaps some of us struggle in significant ways if we're just sort of honest with ourselves. Maybe pride is something that, that you struggle with. I can think back to when I was a kid and, I, you know, I was good at school, good at things, and I sort of let that go to my head as I was a young kid and thought I was the greatest thing. I'm just the smartest. I'm the best. And I remember as a kid growing up hearing quite a bit uh, from my mom in particular, pride comes before a fall, which is sort of like a paraphrase a little bit, loose paraphrase of Proverbs uh, 16, 18. I heard that time and time and time again and had to work on that, that pride that, that I just sort of naturally puffed myself up in, uh, puffed myself up with and, and was characterized by pride and had to, to work on that uh, an awful lot. And, and by God's grace, I'm a lot better than that. I'm not that kid of, you know, many, many, many years ago. But some of us just naturally struggle with pride quite a bit. As I even talked about, we all ultimately struggle with pride in the sense that any act of, of sin is really at its root an act of pride. We're saying, God, I don't want you on the throne. I don't want you to be boss. 
I want your place. I want to be God in my life. I want to be the boss. And so any act of sin has pride at its root. So we all sin. We all struggle with pride. But even just in sort of the more typical sense in which we think of pride in our lives, we all struggle with it. Maybe some of us in more significant ways, as I talked about when I was a kid. Uh, Maybe some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, might say, you know, I think I'm fairly humble. I don't think I'm overly a, a prideful person. But if we're sort of honest and we search our hearts, we might find certain areas of our lives where we kind of puff ourselves up with pride a bit. Maybe we're not prideful in every area, but perhaps you're kind of prideful when it comes to your job. And, you know, I'm the best, at, you know, at least in your mind. Maybe you really are the best. That doesn't excuse being prideful about it. Uh, but maybe it's sort of like, you know, I'm the best nurse at my job or the best doctor or the best fill in the blank. And you think you're just so great and so forth. Maybe you're humble in other areas of your life, but you're prideful there. Maybe some other area, oh, you know, I'm, I think I'm a great parent or I'm great at this, great at that, whatever it might be. We all have areas in our lives where we just sort of uh, puff ourselves up in pride, where that pride sort of lurks within. Uh, and as I think of our, our, our challenge, our, our application, I want to challenge us to do some sort of soul searching, take a look within, be honest with ourselves and say, where is their pride that sort of lurks within? Again, maybe maybe some of you just, you struggle with pride in a lot of areas of your life. It's sort of in your face and, and you realize that and it's like, I, I need to be rid of that and, and not be prideful. Or again, maybe it's just sort of certain spheres of your life, certain areas, certain things that maybe you're particularly good at and so you become a little prideful about it. But do some soul searching and take a look within and say, where is their pride uh, in my heart of hearts, and then really seek and, and, and resolve to be rid of that pride in your life in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, right? We're not just going to change ourselves, but really come before the Holy Spirit and say, I don't want to be prideful anymore. I, I don't want to be that person. I, I don't want to puff myself up in pride. I, I want to be humble. I want to exhibit humility in my life. Holy Spirit, just, just change me on the inside. Bring about that transformation that I need on the inside to, to live out humility uh, rather than pride in my life. And again, the, the major driving force behind, behind doing this and wanting to be rid of pride in our lives should be just love of God, just loving God and, and having a desire to say, Lord, you delight in humility and you despise pride. And so I don't want to be prideful. I just want to serve you. I want to honor you faithfully in my life. I just want to live for you and, and be obedient and live out a life that honors you and pleases you and glorifies you. And so I don't want to see pride in my life. I want to see humility that you delight in. But then it's just sort of an, an added motivator and, and uh, behind this is the reality that, as we talked about, if this pride in our lives, you know, there will be consequences. Scripture is very clear what happens when this pride in our lives, and it's God's going to punish us. He will bring us low. He will humble us. And so if this pride in our lives, that's ultimately what's going to end. And so even for our own sake, it's best to be rid of that pride. We should do it first and foremost for the Lord, but the reality is uh, it's best for us to be rid of that pride as well in our lives that we might not then be humbled and brought low. But again, if we exhibit that humility, then God will bless us and lift us up and honor us and exalt us. And so I just want to challenge us uh, as the Lord's people to really do that, that searching within our hearts, find those places of pride. We all have them, each and every one of us, and then just resolve to be rid of that pride, to live out a life of humility Let's be a church, the Lord's people, just filled with humility in a way that honors and glorifies and pleases God, knowing that then if we're truly humble, he will lift us up, he will bless us, he will exalt us. Amen. And let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for these examples before us in Scripture as we looked at Adam and Eve and 
Paul and, and other passages that we looked at speaking to, to pride and, and humility. And uh, Lord, the reality that where this pride, you will bring that person low, you will humble them. But for those who humble themselves, you will exalt us. Lord, may we recognize that reality that that's how you respond to pride and humility. You despise pride and punish it, and you delight in humility and bless it and lift it up. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would recognize the reality that, that for all of us, we struggle with pride to varying degrees. This is something we all need to hear about. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would just do some honest, genuine, prayerful soul searching, seek out those areas in our lives, seek to discern those areas in our lives where there's still pride within. And then may we just resolve to be rid of it and Holy Spirit, just bring transformation within us on the inside that we might live out lives of humility that just honor you and glorify you and please you. And then may you lift us up and exalt us as your word says. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.